John likes tech and lives in Indiana, you know Kevin likes the Dodgers and talks on the radio John plays games on Xbox and on his Nintendo While Kevin runs around LA with his mustachio It's the Lack of Genius Podcast In your ear holes at last They don't know they're Mars from Venus That's why it's the Lack of Genius Podcast you're a willing participant in this, David Radcliffe, our guest for the day. <laughs> <laughs> you have signed on willingly. Um, I'm Kevin. My partner, John, is here. And yep. and we got our special guest, David Radcliffe. It's good to see you, David. Welcome. Yeah. Thanks, man. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, we're super excited to have you. David is someone who John and I have known in some context for probably a very long time. As the listeners know, if they've listened for a long time, John and I grew up in the Church of the Brethren, the same church community, Mm -hmm. and David is also a part of that community. And so we, you know, even though we're across the nation, um, where are you right now, David, by the way? Are you in Arizona? Did I make that up? Yeah, well, sort of kind of did. I was in Arizona. I'm in Blue Ridge, Virginia now. I moved back to my home area about six years ago. Okay, got it. I'm I'm just six years late. No problem. No no worries. (laughs) Um, Yeah. David is somebody who is uh, well known throughout our church because, um, well, I'm, I could guess the reasons, but um, all I know is I have a, a very special place in my heart for David because of his nonprofit that I'll let him tell you a little bit about, New Community Project, um, that I spent some time going on a trip to Nepal with him with. But David, I'm hogging all the mic time. Um, tell us about yourself. Tell us about New Community Project. And we're he- we have you here for Earth Day, which is uh, a day after this episode gets released. So I'll let you take the floor and I'll shut up now. Well, uh, again, it's great to be with you guys. I'm David Radcliffe. I do work with New Community Project. Uh, we call ourselves a small nonprofit organization with a big goal to change the world. And so if you're going to be changing the world, you got to pick your battles. So the things we work on, which we didn't really narrow it down all that much. One of them is earth care. <laughs> and that's a fairly, fairly broad field. Uh, we work at specific aspects right. of that, which we'll talk about it kind of as we go along here, maybe. Um, we also work at peace through justice, which we basically mean fairness for people in the world. Uh, that means especially for us, for New Community Project, women and girls around the world. And Kevin, that was a focus of our trip to Nepal to work with on women and girls issues, especially. Uh, also, Native communities in the Americas. We have friends down the Amazon, up in the Arctic, and also uh, in New Mexico, actually. And then third thing I want to talk about. So earth care, peace through justice, and then what we call experiential learning which is sort of getting us out of our comfort zone and experience in this world in one way or another in a way that helps us see ourselves and our world differently. And we have a couple of ways of doing that. We have these learning tours that you've been on. Uh, John has yet to go on. I won't mention that. Um, also, we have- uh, It's on my list. We have sustainable, you're on our list. We have sustainable <laughs> living centers uh, in Virginia where they put our stuff into practice. Uh, agricultural stuff, transportation stuff, outreach to the marginalized. Oh, that's what I was going to say about the the third thing of the peace through justice is reaching out to marginalized people in our own communities Uh, because there's plenty of those where we live. We don't have to go around the world to find that. And we really work at that on food security issues, firewood security issues up in Vermont at our center and just sort of inclusion at our centers. So, but back to the experiential learning. So we've got the learning tours. Uh, We've got our sustainable living centers where people come and participate uh, and then my own traveling and talking. So that's sort of the the nexus of our work. We are small but mighty, you know, maybe 10 or 11,000 people in our network around the country, partners in eight countries around the world. And yet I think we go a long way with what we've got. So, and we'll, again, we'll talk more about some of that as we go along. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the things I, I here I here you are talking about the world and and how to help others, and I'm about to just talk about you, David. But that's one of the things I really admire about you is what you just described, and and you say it with complete modesty and humility. You do you do so much work to to get this information out, mm-hmm. and you, you know one thing that you gave me a lot of perspective on, a new community project gave me a lot of perspective on, is this idea of being a global citizen. <clears throat> and what's what gets really complicated about that is. You know, as someone who feels like a global citizen, I want to go on these learning tours and I want to go throughout the world. But there's also things in our own backyard that we need focus on. And I'm sure, you know, as you already alluded to, oh, my gosh, like, how do you how do you focus on one thing? It's just got to be, you know, just got to do one thing at a time. We can only do what we can do. Right. Well, of course, making global citizenship choices all through our day, every day. 
with our transportation options, our food options, mm-hmm. our waste options, our extraction options, our consumeristic options, uh, the clothes on our back. You know, we're making all these choices every day. So you ain't got to leave home. None of us have to leave home to be that glo- a responsible global citizen. Yeah, very well said, David. And I would just like to add that I rode the metro yesterday in Los Angeles, California, and that is an accomplishment if, the, if I've ever heard of one right there. <laughs> I do, you know, it's funny. I, I jokingly pat myself on the back for that, but I, I do take that to heart when I think, you know what? Where I'm going is near the metro. I don't need to use my gas. I don't need to call a lift. I can take this thing that's already running for that saves me money, helps the environment. So the, it's these daily choices, and uh, and I'm grateful that's to great. just have the reminders for them through, yeah. through yourself and organizations like you. If only we had that in the Midwest. <laughs> no, no metro running through Marion, Indiana. Is that what you're saying? And <laughs> uh, you know, what? to be honest, I'm not even sure if there's a bus system. I know Muncie <laughs> has, has a bus system, but. I mean, I, I live out in the, live out in the country, so I mean, there's not much around. So yeah. you can hitch a ride on a tractor that's passing through town is what you can do. <laughs> <laughs> Tidy up before we go go any further with the show show. Tidy up before we go go fix our mistakes tonight. I wanna get it right. So to any new ears out there and to David, who uh, may not be familiar with our format, this is where we take uh, things from previous episodes, usually that maybe we made a mistake on. Last week, we uh, did an Easter episode and we oh mm-hmm. we made mistakes, <laughs> you know, just just little things that we can tidy up. For example, we had a word in one of your questions, John, and it was yeah. you thought it was pronounced Esther and it was it's spelled E-O-S-T-R-E. And what, what was the reference to that word again? I, I don't even remember. I learned nothing. Uh, it's uh, the name of an uh, old goddess. An old goddess that Easter is named after. Yeah. Yeah. And we we did not know how to pronounce it. John thought Esther. I thought Aostre because, again, it's E-O-S-T-R-E. Turns out we were both kind of right. It's <laughs> Aoster. So the stir from Esther that John had and the AO that I had from Aostre, just put them together, you get Aoster, and and that's and that's how we tidy things up here. Uh, John, I know you had a you had a fun announcement for us, right? Yeah, uh, we are getting ever closer to having uh, t-shirts and hoodies. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. I think should be relatively soon. So and um, oh, look at that! What do you? What is that? A new community shirt? One Earth, one, Earth, one chance. Uh, That's beautiful. Uh, long sleeve versions. I'm just okay. Just thought we had a moment for f- free PR. I'd, I'd you know, <laughs> jump in the fray. It, oh yeah, take it. That is a great shirt. In fact, mm-hmm. I, the only new community project uh, shirt that I have is probably like 15 years old, and it's a great shirt. Um, but I don't have that one. And and. Uh, Way to, way to take advantage of an opportunity there, David. I love it. Entrepreneur <laughs> spirit. <laughs> and then one last tidy up that I'll do, um, our logger Dylan. In fact, someone you probably know, David, Dylan Haro, if you're familiar with that name. He's a guy I went to University of Laverne with and have known for many years. He is a, I forget what his email said exactly, but he's a dedicated logger. So he, there was a point that I was making about a uh, the, the world's largest Easter egg hunt. And I there was like 9,000 kids who went on this hunt. And I made I just made like kind of an off the cuff comment about like yeah and if you if you include their parents then you might triple that number and i i kind of stumbled and caught myself because i'm like well not everybody has two parents but i really like the way that uh dylan said it he said when you're talking about tripling the number of kids at the largest easter egg hunt that assumes that all children have no siblings it sounds like you are catching yourself as you say two parents too recognizing that some families have a single parent some divorced parents get along well enough to be in the same room potentially with new partners. The number could be as high as four parents per child, unless you count godparents too. So Dylan, you're going, you're, you're taking us down a rabbit hole. Or in some cultures, parenting is shared by many people who aren't biological parents. I think Dylan's point is, is well taken. Uh, he took it down every possible path, but um, it's a beautiful reminder that parenting comes in so many different ways. And, um, right. and that Easter egg hunt was probably on and popping with all kinds of parents and families and kids. It's time to take a quiz or two. Like a genius podcast doing this for you. You may fail, but it ain't no lie, baby. It's quiz time. Don't really want this quiz to be tough. I just want to pass one because I failed enough. It might sound crazy, but it ain't no lie, baby. It's quiz time. 
quiz time translates to your time to shine, David, because mm-hmm. um, we are the only podcast that makes our guests do work. And you have done work for us by creating a five question quiz. Unless, John, you had anything. I know I've been kind of hogging the mic time here. No. Um, we can hop in and just kind of let you start with question one if you feel ready, David. Okay, yeah. sure. Yeah, and it's not my time to shine. It's you guys' time to shine. We'll see how you do on this quiz, boys. <laughs> Bring it on. So we're, we're actually going to start off with probably the most important number in the world right now, and that is how many parts per million of CO2 in the global atmosphere. Because as the parts per million go, so goes climate change, and so go we. Let's just put it that mm-hmm. way. So you're asking what currently is the parts per million of CO2 in the global atmosphere. That's correct. Your choices are A, 12. B, 280, C, 419, D, 10,250. And I was merciful. I gave you a clue. Mm -hmm. I put in the beginning that during the last ice age, the parts per million of CO2 was 180. So now is it 12, 280, 419, or 10,250? Well, and this is where my uh, environmental science degree, hopefully I don't forget too much stuff. You're putting a target on your back right now, John. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be like, I don't have, I have no degrees. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, th- that clue is very helpful because when, when we see 180 mm-hmm. parts per million of CO2 in the last ice age, I'm guessing that means 12 is not going to be the correct answer in this case. I don't think it dr- went down that drastically by any stretch of the imagination. Can you quickly, David, explain the concept of what parts per million means? Well, it's basically talking about the saturation of the atmosphere with CO2. Uh, the more CO2, it's like there are, certain, there are a number of greenhouse gases. Carbon dioxide is one, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxide, um, water vapor is actually a greenhouse gas. All these things trap the sun's energy mm. once it passes down from itself, the sun, to the earth. Uh, if we didn't have any tr- heat trapping gases around the earth, the average earth's temperature would be, instead of 56, which it is now, would be like zero. We'd be popsicles. So we need some heat trapping gases to surround the earth to keep this little blanket. You might say a blanket. I I compare it often when school groups with a blanket. And if you put too many blankets on the bed, you can start to get a little sweaty and a little too warm under the blankets. So what we're doing is essentially Mm -hmm. adding too many blankets to the bed as we put more of these heat trapping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Got it. I love that. I love that analogy. That's very clear to me. You're, you're going to have to assume that I'm an elementary school student in all these <laughs> questions and just talk to me like you would in elementary school. That's just the rule of thumb. John, I'm tempted to choose first just because of your potential mm-hmm. knowledge on this. I'm really afraid that the answer is 10,250 parts per million. That's the highest choice. And it's way higher than the others. You know, the, the options right. are 12, 280, 419, 10,250. I, I think I'm going to choose it just because I'm talking about it. I'm hoping it's not the answer, though. Okay, John. John, set him straight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm leaning more towards C. But I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that it's not constant, the rate. Uh, it actually goes up and down because, you know, it goes down during the summer, actually, uh, because of all the trees and everything. Uh, and then during the winter, it goes up. And it's not because necessarily because, you know, we're using, you know, more fuel to heat and everything. But it's actually, you know, there's no plants pulling the CO2 out. John, uh, <laughs> should I hit it? Should I hit it? This is what we call a John. I suppose. Knowledge. We have a winner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, John, that was beautiful. Are you choosing 419 then? I am. Okay. I have a feeling you're right. How do we do, David? Well, uh, yes, John, uh, you did have it correct. And Kevin, yes, you're still back in kindergarten. <laughs> I, I, this, is, this will be a very common theme. <laughs> the reason, I, the one reason I put the 280 in there is that's about what it was at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Wow. So you've got 280 as the beginning of when we started really putting fossil fuels into the air. Now, humans mastered fire about half a million years ago. And that's when you can begin to see a little bit of of combustion evidence in the snowpack. If you look down deep enough in the snow layers, if you drill Mm -hmm. down into the ice cores, you can find a little bit of of that soot and sediment starting in a little bit of more CO2 in the atmosphere. But up until 200, maybe mid-1700s, it was really never an issue because we weren't putting enough up to really affect things. So the baseline is like 280. Well, now we are at 419. Mm -hmm. And John is exactly right. There are some variations during the year. 
But on in general, it's going up. That's that's really the troubling part. Right. So now we've got a little less than I think about 1.2 degrees Fahrenheit global temperature rise, which is no, excuse me, that was Celsius, about two and a half degrees Fahrenheit, something like that. The goal, as you're hearing all the conversation now uh, from the IPCC report that just came out last week, the goal has always been we have to keep it below 1.5 degrees Celsius warming, and we're like at 1.2 or something like that. Well, there's a lot of skepticism that we're going to keep it below 1.5 degrees Celsius. So I just have a few more numbers for you. If we get to two degrees Celsius, which is, you know, what, about um, four and a half degrees Fahrenheit or something like that, warmer than it is now. If it's two degrees Celsius warmer than the baseline of where we were 200 years ago, then they say the ice sheets collapse. At three degrees Celsius above normal, there's permanent drought in Europe. At four degrees, 16 times more wildfires. And I will say that one of the most um, devastating extinctions that the Earth has ever experienced about 250 million years ago was because of climate change, because of release of greenhouse gases from volcanoes. And, but it was five degrees above, quote unquote, normal, and it ended all but a sliver of life on Earth. Now, that was five degrees Celsius. They think there's a reasonable chance we'll be at four degrees Celsius by the end of this century. So, you know, that's kind of, that's why that number is not considered the most important number in the world. Now, there may be other ways to think about important numbers. You know, we've got the Ten Commandments and <laughs> we've got, uh, you know, um, we've got the length of centimeters of Kevin's mustache. Thank you. I've been saying it for years. That there, This is one of the numbers that bodes ill or well for human, the human community and all of life on Earth, really. So it's something we need to, we need to know. Yeah, I will concede the, uh, the importance of my mustache and centimeters to this number. I'm going to say that this number is far more important. And um, John got it right. I got it wrong. And I think if, you're, if we're all ready, we can go on to number two. Sure enough. Well, this one, uh, this is probably to me one of the second, maybe the second most important number in the world. And don't feel bad if you still get it wrong, Kevin. Um, <laughs> oh, I will. This is the percentage fewer of non-human living creatures on Earth today versus 1970. Now, I will mention here that human population has doubled since 1970. So this is non-human living creatures. What percentage fewer living creatures are on the Earth than there were just 50 years ago? A, 12. B, 35, C, 70, D, 92. So we're talking about birds, fish, creepy crawly things, all that sort of stuff. 12, 35, 70, or 92. Yeah, another question I'm scared to answer just because 1970, I mean, yeah, that was 52 years ago. When you look at 1970, it's like, that's not that long ago. And for any of these percentages to be true, mm -hmm. I'm not going to choose 92%. I'm not going to choose the big, 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 scary one. I'll tell you that right now. John, what, what do you know about this? What are your thoughts on this? I, I know the number is fairly big. I mean, 1970s was kind of when the EPA came around to become a thing. I mean, and that was, I mean, Silent Spring, I think, was written back in the 50s, I think. And that was kind of when... Um, this realization of, hey, we're killing things off that we probably don't want to be killing off. So we've done a lot of damage. Um, he's winding here, Kevin. I'm not sure he's going to get us, get to giving us an answer or not. I'm sure, not sure where John's going here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wants to get it right is the thing. Uh, yeah, th th this is this is how it goes. Kevin just picks one sometimes, and then I I logically try to figure it out. I'm the dumb one, so it's it's okay for me to just say I'm choosing this one. But John's like, oh, I actually have knowledge on this, so I should get it right. right. That's the problem. I I'm going with B. Yeah, thirty five. Yeah, I'm, I I want to choose something different than you. I, I kind of want to, but I think I think I'm going to choose the same one as you. I think I'm going to. You should choose something different. Oh, oh, never mind. Scratch, scratch what I just said. I am. <laughs> see, now I would be shocked though. Seventy percent sounds crazy huge. I'm going to go down the other way then and say a twelve percent just to play it safe. Yeah, unfortunately. What do we got? Is it is it seventy? Yes, it is. Uh, Hard to believe. Well, I mean, I'll give you just one. They say there are three billion fewer songbirds in North America than there would have been at that time. And you think about the oceans and how we have just so over-harvested the oceans. Insect populations, they're going down 2 to 3% per year around the world. So you, you can't do that but so long until you're getting close to the bottom of the scale on things like this. And you, you know all the reasons. Or let's just go over the reasons. Let's actually talk about the reasons. So what are the three or four or five top reasons 
or the the decimation of other living things on the planet? Give me give me some the of the first thing that came to my mind is is just is fishing and and the the industry of fishing and removing animals from the ocean. Generally, you can call that over harvesting. So taking too much of the stuff that we like, mm-hmm. as I as I say, we tend to love things to death. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's powerful. I mean, another big one that is caused by our a little bit over of over harvesting is also runoff from agriculture. The fertilizer and everything gets into the water systems, and then here in the Midwest, it all eventually heads into the Gulf of Mexico. And there's an actual dead zone. You can actually find pictures of it where. It, the water is clearly different and it's like this just line and that's, you know, causes al- algae blooms and everything, which then just, you know, is toxic to the fish and everything and kills it off. So that's actually, you almost got to another one there. So far we've got over harvesting. We've got pollution of various kinds. We could also include plastic pollution. We can think of oil pollution. You're talking about runoff. That's a critical one. Then you're kind of getting into habitat destruction, which is another big one in terms of the loss of species. Uh, invasive species is another one, things that we import to an area that didn't belong there, uh, and then they sort of overrun the local population, whatever that may be. We might also say that population in general, just the expansion of humans, and not just that we need more space, which we do, but also our appetites, mm. just the, the population of people that takes more and it factors into all those other things that we have mentioned. So those, those are actually the acronym HIPPO, Habitat, Invasive Species, Population, Pollution, Over-Harvesting. I love that. But now we have to add a C at the end. Or at the beginning, we could call it Chippo. Chippo. What, what what's the C stand for as the new kid on the block in terms of threatening creatures' existence? What's the C stand for? Climate change. Climate change? Is that right? Yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just heard that, uh, you know, fish are needing to migrate because the water's too warm. Uh, they have to also leave their areas because of the, uh, the algae blooms that John was talking about. But another factor off the coast of Virginia, and I assume California, is that fish are having to migrate further north because warmer water holds less oxygen. Mm-hmm. The question is, can their, their ecosystem travel with them through food sources and other things that they need to sort of, and habitat kind of uh, accoutrement, you might say, will those travel with them as they have to migrate? And I just heard this week that 25% of Yellowstone's wolves were killed last year by hunters yeah. oh. outside, just outside the park boundaries oh. because they've been delisted as an endangered species. And there's a lot of pressure in Idaho and Wyoming for hunters to want to kill wolves. And I, I think it's just a macho thing by, oh. by male hunters. That's the best, the best I can figure out. Totally. But in any event, two things about that is that as seasons change or as the climate changes is the best way to say it, mm-hmm. things will need to migrate and uh, national parks are only so big. The area around the national parks is not always protected. And they're not, so when they move out of those ranges, uh, they've got a problem facing them. Um, so there you've got both uh, over-harvesting and you've got climate change at play in those two systems. And I'll, I'll just throw in another one just related to the wolves. They weren't in Yellowstone for decades because they've been killed off in the region. Well, then the elk over-multiplied, mm-hmm. which was good for the elk, but they ate all the stuff along the streams, which the beavers needed to survive. And so the beaver populations had crashed down to one colony in Yellowstone. And now they've reintroduced the wolves. The elk have to move. The things are growing back by the streams. And now there's 10 or 12 beaver colonies in the park. So all these things, as we all know, are so interrelated. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, you know, Indiana, we, we've got quite a few state parks and everything. And we have one down in uh, southern Indiana called Brown County. And, you know, we have a lot of deer in Indiana. And there was one time, I, late 90s, early 2000s, where they had to open up like full on, you can shoot as many deer as you want. Because normally you, you can only, you know, kill so many deer a year. And it was just like open season because there was some same thing, you know, the, the deer were literally eating all the vegetation that they could reach because you know we killed the wolves off back in the 1800s you know when we first started settling indiana yeah ready for the next one? Oh yeah yeah let's hop let's hop into number three all right here we go let's get personal let's talk about california <laughs> yeah, kevin my home. so how many total miles driven by californians annually mm. a three hundred forty thousand. b three hundred forty million. C, 34 billion, or D, 340 billion? 
Oh, boy. Total miles driven by Californians every year, 340,000, 340 million, 34 billion, 340 billion. I'm, I'm feeling that pressure that John had earlier. Do you want a clue? Anybody want a clue? <laughs> I, would want a clue? I would love a clue. Do you killing. want a clue? Bring it on. <laughs> the United States as a whole drives about 3 trillion miles a year. Wow. Which is interesting because I, I would guess California has a very high percentage of that. I know I take the 405 to work every day. And when I'm looking around at just the cars immediately around me, I'm like, I bet we do 34 billion just among us right here, you know? Um, no, I, I have no idea. Um, I do know, you know, and we alluded to this, I forget, I already forgot if this was in the pre-show or in the actual show where I sort of jokingly patted myself on the back for taking the Metro. I mean, one of the big problems, at least in LA, where commuting is huge, numbers of commuters are huge, is that there, we don't have a good Metro system. Our, our city is so vast. There are so many people and so many places to go that it's just how do you accommodate to all of them with public transportation? And it's a, it's a huge project, but I don't have the answers. I don't know. I literally don't even have the answer to this question that we're asking right now. So I'm not the person to ask, <laughs> but, um, you want another clue? Yeah, I would love it. Give me all the clues. <laughs> Let's just say that California is probably about 10% of the U S economy. Yeah. Okay. And I told you how much the yep. U S altogether drives a year. Yeah. I would go with the, if I'm doing my math right. You're going with the big boy one, 340 billion? That's correct. You got it? Is it 30, 340 billion? Nice, John. <laughs> I didn't make a guess, but I'm going to I'm gonna dock myself because I don't think I would have chosen it. <laughs> well, and it's not so much. Actually, you all, I just, one thing I found interesting, that Wyoming drives about twice as much per capita as, as California. Whoa. Because they have further to go anytime they get in their pickup truck or something. Right. So their per capita miles is like 20, Indiana may be, you know, in the it's running with Wyoming, John, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, the average Wyomingite, I don't know if that's how you say it, uh, drives about 24,000 miles a year. And the average Californian, I think it's twelve or thirteen thousand or something like that. That's and that's kind of the national average, about twelve or thirteen thousand miles per. I think it's per person per year, per driver per year, something like that. And that really uh, is probably our number one environmental sin in terms of the things that the, the, our main contributions, both to climate change. Also to uh, that number we talked about earlier of 70% fewer living creatures. I think every day in the United States, about a million vertebrates gets whacked by a car. Mm -hmm. mm. And as a bicyclist, I see this all the time. I'm seeing fresh kill on my little 15-mile round trip every day. It's hard to go a day or two without seeing something new that's met the bumper or the wheel of a car. So it has many, many different kinds of impacts tra uh, transportation does. Now, electric vehicles are sort of the mantra these days. An electric vehicle, you've got to still make the vehicle. You've still got to have the highways. And they say they their footprint is about a third of that of a regular car in terms of climate change gases. So it's not, it's not climate change impact free, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. Of course, the best thing would be to get us out of our personal vehicles and onto something where we're moving with other people, as you have done, Kevin, in your recent experience on the Metro there. I mean, that it may seem small to you, but boy, if more people had that thought every day, it, that would be a huge step in a good direction. Mm -hmm. But I think we're so wedded to our sense of autonomy and our the, the sort of sense of power that it has being in your own vehicle, being able to set your own schedule uh, and not having to rub shoulders with anybody that you don't know. So there's all kinds of all kinds of cultural things that go into this, as well as the logistics of how we've arranged our society. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But partly is we don't have a population limiter uh, over humans. And, and because of that, you know, we're going to keep keep pumping out those babies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and Kevin, that's a great intro for me to, to say just a one little word about our girls education programs. Oh, please. Uh, you know, our, we have a give a girl a chance program and a fairly famous conservationist in Africa was asked one time, what's the single thing we need to do to conserve wild areas in Africa? And he said, educate girls. Wow. Because the more education a girl has, almost always the fewer children she's going to have mm. and the less impact that's going to have, especially on the local environment, which is really the threat to the parks around the world. One of them is local people because they have need for resources of certain kinds to, to survive, whether it's wood, whether it's mm -hmm. certain foods, whether it's 
things they can poach to sell for money on the world market, whatever it may be. And so if you reduce the population pressures around the parks around the world and in general around forested areas and other wild areas around the world, you're doing it's really going to be a boon for the natural things that live there. I, I appreciate you taking taking the time to explain that because, you know, our, our Nepal trip was in the realm of of give a girl a chance of educating women and and in in this instance and this was this was 10 years ago for me so so we'll see how my memory is but i guess what i'm saying is you hear okay well educating people is great and all but what's that really going to do for the global economy the environment etc you know these young girls in nepal so many of them get sent into human trafficking and sex trade because they don't have the opportunity for education it's not that they're choosing to not be educated it's that the opportunity doesn't exist and so that's one of the big takeaways from my nepal trip and I know a number of your trips as you mentioned focus on that and and what a what a fantastic step in the right direction solution part of the solution is is just providing education and you and you can go to newcommunityproject.org you can donate to give a girl a chance you can go on one of these learning tours you can support a a, a nonprofit that is making change in this way um, a, a plug for you David but more for the world <laughs> time to move on mm-hmm. yeah let's do it number 4 uh, and I, what's our total? It's two nothing, John. I think, right? Yeah. All right, time to come back. Let's do it, David. <laughs> All right. So here we go with um, kind of a match game. So <laughs> I, I just want to put a little variety into the scheme here. <laughs> Plus, I had a bunch of numbers I wanted yeah. to get out, and uh, I needed one more than one way to do it. So here we've got the numbers: three hundred eighty million tons, one hundred billion tons, five billion tons, and fifty-five million tons. And we've got to match them up to the amount of CO2 released by deforestation globally, the global plastic production, global material extraction, in other words, all the minerals and whatever we take from the earth to make what we're going to make for ourselves, and U.S. food waste. And all these are annual numbers. So let me just, uh, let's start with the bottom one first. What about U.S. food sure. waste? Anybody, either you got a guess as to which of those numbers might represent how much food is wasted in the United States on an annual basis from production through shipping to packaging to storage to consumption and then to waste on that end. So waste happens at all along that path. Oh. Which one of those numbers you get might be the food waste number? Yeah, and let me just read the the choices again. 380 million tons, 100 billion tons, 5 billion tons, 55 million tons. John, what do you think? U.S. food waste. I'm thinking 5 billion. Okay. I'm going to go, I'm going to say 380 million tons. My calculations had it at 55 million tons. Oh, that's, both missed it. It's about 300 million pounds a day, 300 million pounds a day. So about a pound per person per day of food waste. They say uh, around the world, if food waste were a nation, it would be the world's third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Oh my gosh, that's so sad. Because of the methane that's created in landfills and also all the all the energy that went into creating the food in the first place. And then we mm-hmm. in the United States waste about 40% of what we uh, grow. Wow. So, yeah, let's keep going. Let's go to the next one. Global material extraction. How many tons of materials do you think humans bring forth from the earth every year to just build and run and fuel and grow and whatever else we do? I'm going with B. I'm going to say think pretty high on this one. Yeah, I'm going with 100 billion. Yeah, if that's a clue, then I'm going to choose. I was I was going to say that's got to be a high number. So, yeah, I think we're both going to choose it. Yeah, we got it. <laughs> David's giving a thumbs up. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's really, it's quite, quite massive. They say a person in the United States requires about 200 pounds of stuff every day from the earth to run our lifestyle. Whoa. And they say of that 100 billion tons, only 8.7% gets recycled meaningfully. Mm, yeah, that's hard. That's a hard number to hear. The question is, how long can this go on? I mean, you know, we're just pulling, pulling, pulling. You know, that's why our T-shirt, One Earth, One Chance, we've only got one planet here, and it only it really has finite limit. One of the problems that we face as humans, we've never come up to this place where we've run up against limits. We've always been able to go to a new continent, invade a new native people's lands, go deeper into the oceans with our technology. We've never bumped up against limits before. So it almost requires a different mindset now 
which, you know, we're sort of hard, hardwired to think there's no limit to this. We don't really have to worry. There's no, no end game in sight here. We can always just take and take and mm-hmm. take. Well, that's not the case. We're filling up the skies with pollution, the waters with pollution. We're emptying the seas. We're emptying the forests. And so it's kind of when the rubber's meeting the road here uh, in terms of humans having to think about their material consumption. Yeah, I mean, I feel like part of it could also be uh, a socioeconomic problem as well, because I, I know whenever I'm going to bu- make a purchase or something, you know, I try to buy the highest quality thing I can afford, which normally if it's a higher quality, it's going to last longer, not be have to be replaced and, and so on. But, you know, if you're not able to afford, you know, something that's nicer and higher quality, then it's going to break a lot sooner or need to be replaced sooner. And so then you're having to spend more money and, you know, throw out the old thing, get the new one where, you know, if you're having to buy something new, you know, once a year for five years versus having a one thing for five years, you know, that that makes a difference too. They say that we throw away within one year, 60% of the clothes that we buy. Well, you know, David, this is actually a question that I had on my mind. You know, I'm, I'm somebody who loves shopping at Goodwills and thrift stores, and I also will donate things to Goodwills and thrift stores. And, you know, there's a certain amount when where a lot of people will say, well, yeah, that's great for the environment. You're doing a good job. But I also know the, the harsh reality effect of that is that these, especially the larger sort of secondhand stores, if I'm not mistaken, ship their clothes, their unsold clothes to lesser developed countries, which then affects the local economy there. You think, oh, that sounds great. We're giving clothes to people. But then these local tailors and clothes makers, they can't, their businesses are done and you're ruining life there. So it all kind of comes back to this like fast fashion and how how quickly people go in and out of the clothes that they they buy, just want, always wanting something new and how detrimental that is to, to so many people. You get extra yeah, extra credit. <laughs> yes, you're exactly right, Kevin. And well, part of the issue you mentioned, given the clothes given to people in other countries, well, they're sold on the streets there. Oh. So somebody buys these buys these bales. Some they'll bid on these bales of clothing when they come into their country. And but you're exactly right; it undermines local tailors. And so mm-hmm. one of the things we're trying to do at New Community Project, especially with women, is capacitate them within their local economy so they can start small tailoring shops or other small businesses and that sort of thing. And when you get this stuff coming in from outside, I mean, I've seen it sold on the streets in Rwanda, El Salvador, wherever, then these young, these women who are trying to make a go of it with what they've got at their disposal, it's very difficult for them. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. I've got a book I would point all your listeners to. It's called The Day the World Stops Shopping by J.B. McKinnon. He basically says that really is our number one problem because of the things we feel like we need, which of course, (laughs) it's questionable. He starts off the book actually with talking about a group of people called the Tukwanzi people who live in North Africa someplace. He talks about them. They have a lot more free time and do a lot less work than those of us in the quote developed world because their aspirations are so much lower. So he says in his book, we can either produce much or want little. Oh, yeah. I love that. So those are the two options. And if we choose to want little, the earth will be better off. We'll be more at peace. Our economy as a whole may may contract a bit. And the people at the top making all the investments in this constant churning of production, they'll be less well off. But the rest of us could find the kind of the golden mean where we have what we need, not more than we need, and the planet may have breathing space. Yeah. And it it sort of, it goes to want versus need. And I think in our society in America and this culture that we're in, so many people confuse. You just, you just want something. You don't really need the newest of everything. And that's such a struggle. Mm -hmm. I I appreciate that book recommendation. I definitely will, will check this out the day the world stops shopping. And, uh, and thanks for the rec for our, for our listeners. Let's finish up uh, number four where we're, I think we're on global plastic production, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, we are. So how much plastics produced each year? I'm going to say this this number is big. And so we got the the smaller of the number, 380 million tons versus the bigger of the numbers, 5 billion. I'm going to choose 5 billion. What do you think, John? I'm going to go with the 380 million because, well, plastic isn't exactly that heavy when you think about it. Oh, oh gosh, John. Are you outsmarting me right now? <laughs> I, based off of David, David's head nod, I, I'm thinking yes. Yeah, so 380 million. So get me if, you, if you factor that out, that's about 100 pounds of plastic per person per year in the world. 100 mm. pounds of plastic per person per year in the world. And of course, we in the rich world use much more than our share, mm-hmm. although plastic is coming on strong around the world, especially yeah. with packaging. 
Well, let's do the last. We, we got the last one, which is the, the CO2 released by deforestation globally. I'm going to guess it's 5 billion tons, being as that's the last option. <laughs> <laughs> Thumbs up from David. Yeah, and I think I think globally... The de- oh boy, I should know this. I should know this statistic just like the back of my hand. But globally, there's about um, I believe 25 or 30 billion tons of CO2 released every year, and so this would be about I think about 20 percent of global CO2 emissions, something like that. So it's significant. Mm, yeah, very much so. Well, and this, this gives me a, a time to plug our, our reforestation campaign, Kevin. Um, yes. We have If a Tree Falls, which is our un- umbrella program, but our kind of organizing principle of the last two years has been the Million Tree Campaign, where we're hoping to plant a million trees over 10 years, 100,000 a year in our partners with our, through our partners in Africa, Asia, Ecuadorian Amazon. Well, we've just upped that, doubled it to the 2 million tree campaign because donors have been so generous and our partners doing such good work that now we're aiming for 2 million trees by the time the next eight years is finished. And so, you know, while the other things that have to do with climate change seem to be sort of in slow motion and even maybe going backwards, going the wrong direction, if some of us can step up with the tools we have available and do what we can, where we can, it can perhaps. One of our most exciting, actually, uh, new venues is in Nigeria. We are partnering with a group there on the southern coast of Nigeria to plant mangroves. And they're like wonder trees. They are like habitat. They stabilize coastlines. They clean the air and clean the water. And they sequester carbon at four times the rate of rainforest. So this year, we spent $20,000 grant over. It's going to plant 40,000 mangroves along the southern coast of Nigeria. So great project for some, some of your listeners or a club or a school or a church or anybody to get them, jump on board this. One of the reasons I love New Community Project being small but mighty, as you described it, is that for those of us who participate in it, we can see maybe not real change, but at least real action. Well, and, and change is happening. Change happens slowly, but we see, you can see real action as opposed to, you know, maybe some huge nonprofit, which go ahead and support all, all, all you like as well. That's great. But it gives you a chance. I mean, we can actually go on these tours and see it firsthand. We can see where our money's going because of the updates that are being posted. It really makes you feel like you have an opportunity to, to have an active hand in making some change in, in the world. And so uh, just, I, I can't, stress how much I uh, support New Community Project and, and encourage the same for anyone listening. Thank you, man. Yeah. Okay, let's look at the uh, last one. I will say there's no right answer here. Everybody's a winner on this one. Basically, what I'm saying is, what you know, what do you think? Uh, just to mull over these or make a comment on each one if you want to. What are the main causes of the environmental crisis? A, anthropocentrism. Uh-huh. B, contempocentrism. C, consumocentrism. D, dissociation. Mm. So we might and, say this is me, now, more, and disassociated or not connected to nature. So disconnected, you might say, to nature. So I'd like for you just, if you want to say, either you want to just say a word about e- each of those, that would be okay with me. So the anthropocentrism, what's the problem with being focused just on humans when we think about the environmental crisis? Oh gosh, just that what we do affects so everything, affects the environment. If we're only focused on us, then we're not thinking about how does this affect the oceans? How does this, much like John's agriculture mm-hmm. example, you know, how does what we're doing putting on to our, our agriculture affect where this runoff is going? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it gives you a bias of, well, you know, this isn't hurting us. So, you know, it must be okay. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Not, not thinking that through to realize if it does hurt everything else, it's going to be coming back on us one of these days. And not to mention the fact that everything else out there, it's not just there for our, our goodie bag. It's there of, of its own purpose. I mean, nature is here. It has rights of its own. And so how do we respect it in a full way that we want to respect ourselves? All right. The second one, which is the uh, contempocentric, which is the now part. What's the problem with humans just focusing on now? I know that it's good not to focus on the now because then you're essentially screwing over generations down the line. You know, that's the way I look at it. Uh, David Wallace Wells' book uh, maybe has something related to this topic of the now. What's the name of his book? Um, It's on climate change. I don't know why I'm not coming up with the name of his book. Anyway, one of the things he says is that the 22nd century is not going to be a place people want to live if we don't take some immediate action Mm. on climate change. So that's kind of things of what are we leaving for our great-grandchildren, essentially? What are we leaving for our great-grandchildren? If we're only thinking about the now, we're not really loving those coming after us, you might say. Yeah. 
Well said. Let's do the next one. Uh, the next one would be uh, consumocentric, which means, you know, I sort of am what I drink, drive, dress, and drool over. Why is that a problem for the environment? I, I will admit that when it comes to technology, I'm always wanting the new thing because I, I really enjoy technology and I like playing with the new things and seeing what that can allow me to do. And, you know, we'll take an Apple, for example, you know, the iPhone now versus the original iPhone is leaps and bounds from many different perspectives from the battery technology to where, you know, you're not having to charge it as often. So that's, you know, less power that you're having to pull out of the wall and coming from, you know, coal or oil or wherever, because, you know, if the phone's able to do more with the same amount of power, then that can save money and save electricity and so on. So I mean, in that aspect, you know, that could be good upgrading to the, the new thing, but that, you know, like every two or three years, not every year type deal. As much as I want the new thing every year, I try to not do that, but sometimes it doesn't always, it, it doesn't always work. One interesting turn of a phrase that I've heard you may have be familiar with the, the phrase, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Yep. Well, now I've heard it said that invention is the mother of necessity. Oh, yeah. That just because they make it, we think we have to have it. So it's just something yeah. to keep in mind. I mean, certainly we have to use dis- discernment, discrimination, John, as you're saying, when mm-hmm. you're making choices about new, new, what, new whatever, whether it's clothes, whether it's appliances, whether it's gadgets, whatever it may be. Uh, we have to use dis- yeah. discernment, discrimination. What's the long-term value of this versus the cost uh, over the long term. Mm-hmm. So there's always choices to be made, which may lead us to the last one, which sort of says dissociation. Why is dissociation, our separation from the earth around us, why is that a problem for the environment? Well, I, mean, I, I think, you know, Aldo Leopold, who is a, a fantastic ecologist and, and teacher back in the day, I mean, his big thing was taking kids and taking them out to the farm and, and seeing, you know, where their food came from. Because that, that may have been the only time that they'd seen a cow or something like that and didn't know that, you know, food just doesn't come from the store in a package with plastic and styrofoam. You know, it, it, it comes from a living thing of whether it's an animal or a plant. It, it's not just in, in the cooler at the store. I'll just share a quick thought. You know, I think a lot of the population and ourselves included, I think we have to look at where we're choosing to be ignorant. We're choosing not to look at, oh, if I just ignore that I'm, if I don't admit I'm part of the problem, then I'm not part of the problem. And I'll, I'll take a chance to be vulnerable here. You know, I see the word disassociation. I think about kind of my own personal journey as I've gone on in the last few years of, of stepping into therapy and looking choosing to actually look at things that I are not great parts of me that I don't want to look at. And turns out I've gotten a lot healthier as a result of doing that. And so, you know, <laughs> you can kind of look at the, the, the world, I think, and maybe mm-hmm. our impact on the world the same way. Let's not turn a blind eye to it. Let's actually look at this problem and figure out what we can do about it. That's very good. I just heard a program on National Public Radio, I guess it was yesterday, and they were talking about this new climate change report and the woman was at some, went to some lengths, the scientists they were talking to went to some lengths to stress that we can't be getting depressed, we can't be getting overwhelmed. Well, the, the positive side of that is you are aware of what you're up against. I had a, a teacher, I teach some classes at the university, uh, at Elizabethtown College, it's actually Elizabethtown College up in Pennsylvania, some online courses. Back when I was actually teaching some sessions in person about 10 years ago there, I was going through that all the, it was an environmental course called Environmental Choices. And that first class, I just lay out all the bad stuff, all the bad news is just coming out on the table. And about halfway through that session, a woman on the one side of the room leaned back in her chair, looked up at the ceiling and said, I'm not sure I want to know this. And I said to her, and this wasn't a religious class, wasn't a religious class, but I said to her and to the class, you remember what Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if we don't know this stuff, we're flying blind is what the way I would see it. And we're flying, flying blind into a, a very uncertain future if we don't face these things. I don't see these changes, the big changes we need to get our earth back on a good footing environmentally. I don't see that coming from the top. I see that coming from the bottom and then affecting the top and forcing the change there. But it's going to have to bubble up from down here where we are. So that's what I would say to all your listeners. Who are you in this ferment? What's the key role that you've got to play in your community around you? And then let that take this world where it will. Impassioned people moving in purposeful ways 
in a way that inspire others. Just one last story. So I'm driving home from Pennsylvania three weekends ago. I had to preach up there. I had a rental car, a lot of driving for four four gigs on a weekend. I felt a lot of carbon and just about a 700 mile round trip. So coming back, I stop at a gas station to get some of that cheap Virginia gas. It's about $2 a gallon cheaper than California, by the way. Indiana, we're in a close race with you. But anyway, you get some of that cheap Virginia gas and I see an aluminum can peering at me from the trash can. And I'm thinking, you know, you know me and aluminum cans. If you don't recycle one aluminum can, it's like filling it half full of gas and pouring it out. So I just was compelled to grab that aluminum can. I try to be discreet. I mean, I've got my pride. <laughs> so I make my way back to the back to my rental car. And obviously, I wasn't discreet enough because no sooner had I settled into the driver's seat and popped that aluminum can in the back floorboard than I heard a tap, tap, tap on the passenger side window. I looked over. There's an Hispanic guy with two empty energy drink cans tapping on the glass of the of the window saying, are you collecting cans? I just sort of laughed and said, I guess so. I am now. So we met outside. We made the exchange, went our separate ways, but we've been joined in a moment of what I would like to think was trying to do the best with what we've been given, yeah. the two of us in that yeah. moment. And so I think that's the other thing. Not only our actions are good of themselves, but they also will we'll find allies. We'll find allies in this. If we're courageous enough to step ahead, it gives others the courage they need to step ahead. Mm, beautifully said. Yeah. And that story was a great, a great sort of note to end on. Um, I, I see a theme that co- sort of came up in some in, in all of us and something that all of us, I think, said at some point or another is that, mm-hmm. you know, there are things that we're not doing perfectly. You mentioned the woman who doesn't want to hear all the bad stuff. And it's, you can't blame her for that. It's hard to look at these things. And John talking about the iPhone, you know, or the, the, the latest technology, like, I don't think it's a matter of us as individuals feeling guilty for, you know, things that nobody's going to be perfect at doing everything right. But what are the little things you, we can do, you know? And, and, and I think right. that's so apropos for, for Earth Day being the, the reason that we have you on this episode is Earth Day is a great day to stop and think, Hey, you know, there's an aluminum can in that trash can. Why don't I just grab it and put it in the recycling? Hey, maybe I take a shorter shower today. Hey, you know what? That pet store that I go to that I usually drive to, I'm going to walk to it today, you know? And if you can keep that habit going every day and just kind of ask yourself these questions, I think that's what it's all about. And I, and it's one of the reasons I was so excited mm-hmm. to have you on, David. You, you've really uh, eloquently, you know, described so many things that are that are so important for a lot of us to know. And I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to have had you on. Yeah. I mean, and what Kevin said is how I feel. It was great having you on and kind of refocused uh, my thinking on some things. Um, so, yeah. Newcommunityproject.org, right, David? That's that's where everything is is housed in terms of the internet. Yes, sir. Um, and we're happy for the visitors there. Get in touch with me if you got any questions or comments, anybody. And uh, good to have you on the journey. And thank you, too, for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Just to get ideas out there into the popular mind, into the popular consciousness, uh, it's serving a real, it's really a service to the people that are tuning in to listen mm-hmm. to you guys. So thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for inviting me to be yeah. part of it. It's a great honor. Thanks for saying that, David. I couldn't recommend a, a, a nonprofit more, a man more, David Radcliffe, newcommunityproject.org. And uh, and we'll be back next week. Thanks for thanks for listening to us and being part of our journey mm-hmm. as well. Namaste. It's the Lack of Genius Podcast. In your ear holes at last. They don't know they're Mars and Venus, that's why it's the Lack of Genius Podcast. Yes, John, you did have it correct. And Kevin, yes, you're still back in kindergarten. <laughs>